Welcome to the Visegrad Insight podcast on Central Europe from Central Europe. It's July 14th, Wednesday. Only a couple of days ago, Russia has published its national security strategy and Vladimir Putin published an op-ed on the government websites calling for unity of Russians and Ukrainians as one nation. On our today's podcast, we have a special guest to discuss these new developments in Russia and uh, implications for Central Eastern Europe. My name is Gregory Pfeiffer. I'm a journalist who spent a decade in Russia, partly as Moscow correspondent for National Public Radio. Uh, I have written several books uh, about Russia. I'm currently the executive director of the Institute of Current World Affairs in Washington, and I co-host a podcast called The Cable uh, with Jonathan Katz, who's the director of the Transatlantic Democracy Working Group in, in Washington. Gregory, welcome to the show. We're we're so happy to have you. Uh, such an experienced uh, journalist uh, covering Russia, um, a scholar, a writer, and and a fellow podcaster. And um, and a particular reason we're we're happy is that we can ask you these questions about um, uh, Russia's new uh, you know security national security strategy and and this very troubling op-ed by Vladimir Putin only days after. Uh, after they met um, uh, Joe Biden and and Vladimir Putin, the, the leaders of of two countries, uh, and it seemed that uh, much has been accomplished in terms of the at least the language of stability, uh, de escalation of, um, of of certain tension that was built in the air, but then we have uh, very revisionist claims, a very revisionist language, historical revisionism. Uh, back and again on on the on the table from Russia, and and yes, my my question to you is, how do you read that? Well, first of all, thanks so much for, uh, for having me. Delighted uh, to be here, and and also very flattered. Uh, that's a very uh, sort of gl- global question, universal question. I think about uh, Putin and and Putin's Russia. Um, I mean, I think one of the r- remarkable things about uh, Putin is that he's been more or less consistent and predictable for the around 22 years of his having been in power, both as president and, and, and prime minister. There were hopes uh, on this side of the Atlantic that some things would change after the Biden-Putin uh, summit la- last month. Uh, but I think that most <clears throat> people who know Russia and have followed it closely didn't uh, expect that. And I should say that the the differences in the debate here in Washington between those who believe that we should uh, do more to try to engage Russia uh, and those who who believe that previous attempts to, to engage Russia have uh, have all failed, the differences aren't that large. it's it's I think there's a general acknowledgement that uh, uh, Vladimir Putin runs a um, authoritarian kleptocracy uh, that seeks, legitimization by confronting the West, that Putin sees negotiation and compromise uh, as, as weakness uh, and seeks to exploit meetings like uh, his recent one with, uh, with, with Joe Biden. Um, and I think that's pretty much been the case uh, this time. Essentially, uh, nothing has changed, both on this end. The United States passed more <laughs> sanctions um, ag- uh, against Russia and, and Belarus uh, since the 
um, summit. Uh, uh, attacks, cyber attacks have continued, uh, including ransomware attacks uh, against <clears throat> organizations in the United States. Uh, and now we see that uh, Putin's rhetoric uh, again has achieved a new level uh, with not only his 5,000-word uh, article on Ukraine that he's just published, uh, but also the, the issuing of a new national security strategy earlier this month that has taken criticism uh, to the West to a new level. Let's talk about the strategy for a moment and explain what's inside. Sure. So, uh, this was a decree that Putin passed on July 2nd, uh, essentially replacing a previous version that has existed since 2015. Now, this one was passed shortly after the um, 2014 annexation of Crimea, uh, the war in Ukraine, and a new level of confrontation uh, against the West. Um, the, the, the tone is very similar. It's nothing that one wouldn't have expected. Uh, but the new one is notable for wording such as preparing for wartime, mobilization readiness of the economy, as well as many references to ways in which Russia says it is allegedly threatened by the West. But I think the most remarkable thing uh, about the new uh, national security document is that it claims that Russia's cultural sovereignty is under threat, uh, and that its traditional values are under attack by the United States and its allies. And it also takes, um, or rather, it claims the, the discretion to take action to defend them. Uh, so this, this is something new that we haven't seen before. Uh, any kind of mention of possible partnership with uh, Western countries, possible cooperation with NATO, um, that has been dropped. So in a sense, we can see this new document as uh, essentially dropping any previous pretenses about uh, Putin's uh, intentions as confrontation with the West. Uh, but I will say one thing, uh, and that is that one thing that I think that, that, that Western observers of uh, Russia should, should keep in mind is that Russian rhetoric and Russian interests, uh, rather Russian institutions, uh, are often facades that are meant to deceive outsiders. Uh, so, you know, whatever rhetoric comes out, of, uh, comes out of Putin, we should naturally take skeptically anyway. How is that received in Washington? Well, you know, I think that the summit was mostly praised. Um, I have to say that I didn't think it was a good idea uh, heading into it uh, because uh, Putin sees these kind of uh, events as a way to le legitimize uh, his authoritarian repression as at home, uh, his kleptocratic uh, system, uh, and so that the risks that uh, a meeting with Biden would essentially be seen in, in Russia as uh, giving Putin a slide on all of his previous actions in Syria, in Ukraine, in Belarus, um, the uh, hacking attacks of the U.S. elections, uh, American companies, and so on and so forth, that those risks outweighed any possible benefits. I have to say that uh, in retrospect, uh, I think it did pass off fairly well for Biden. It was, uh, I'm certainly not the first to say this, but it was important for Biden to be seen on the world stage 
defending uh, Western uh, liberal democratic uh, values, uh, especially after the scene, the appalling scene of um, Donald Trump um, siding with with, uh, with Putin in uh, in Helsinki a couple of years ago. Um, so I, you know, and I think that's largely the way it was that has been taken in Washington. Um, I don't think there's been a lot of surprise since. Uh, over the the new rhetoric coming over uh, coming out of um, coming out of the Kremlin about Ukraine and the national security strategy, uh, I think that there was just a, a general um, sort of wave of dismay that uh, this this article about Putin, which is sent uh, rather about Ukraine, which essentially claims that uh, Russia and Ukraine are are the same, that the language is the same, uh, that um, the, the West is seeking to split U- Ukraine from its sort of natural uh, association uh, with Russia. Um, again, this is nothing new. Uh, Putin's reported to have told uh, President George W. Bush that uh, Ukraine is is not really a, a real country. Uh, so this is nothing new. Uh, but the latest uh, claims, and this is part of an article that um, touched on uh, hundreds of years of history and, and re- really re- rewrote uh, what uh, you know Russia's relations uh, with uh, w- with Ukraine. Just a, a wave of dismay, um, not surprise, um, and, and I think that uh, you know it's it's further reinforcement that really nothing has changed since the summit, nothing is changing about uh, about Putin, and that we would do well to uh, really look at what is motivating his actions, including the fact that we have uh, in Russia Duma elections, parliamentary elections coming up in, in September, uh, and an unprecedented wave of repression against the opposition. Uh, uh, free speech, the free press, uh, since the, the the collapse of communism in 1991. Could you perhaps understand and explain what are his motives uh, from the perspective of internal affairs, but also from external pressures? Sure. Um, well, look, I, you know, I think that uh, there's a clear pattern in Putin's actions uh, over time. Uh, I think shortly after he came to power, he seems to have had uh, an idea uh, that he could come to an agreement with the West about essentially dividing the world into spheres of influence uh, and that Russia would hold sway over the uh, over large parts of Eurasia, certainly the former Soviet Union, uh, probably also the former Soviet bloc uh, in in, in Europe. Um, And so I don't think it was a... uh, big surprise or coincidence that Putin was the first foreign leader to call uh, uh, President George W. Bush after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, And I think he was seeking to uh, insert the then war in Chechnya that he had recently uh, revived, uh, sort of insert that into the narrative of the global war on terror, and and in that way uh, be given... um, essentially free hand to do what he wants in the in the former Soviet space. Uh, as we know, that didn't work. Uh, there was a second attempt uh, a few years later, uh, which really, I think, uh, climaxed in 2008 with 
um, the uh, that prime minister who became uh, temporary president, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, who was proposing a new European security architecture, uh, which most people saw as an attack against the existing uh, uh, security architect architecture and uh, institutions such as the EU uh, and NATO, and it was really dismissed without even much comment. Um, I think Russia's reaction was partly seen in the invasion of Georgia in 2008. Uh, there are many issues going on there, but I think that was Russia's response. That, and it was clear to me, I was a correspondent in Moscow at the time, that looking at the, the rhetoric of not only uh, the military, uh, but also politicians in Moscow, uh, and the way that uh, military officers carried themselves uh, in, in Georgia and in, in breakaway Abkhazia, uh, which I covered, really showed the, 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 the body language, if, if nothing else, showed that, that the Kremlin had taken the decision to break with the West, that it had, that it had really expected a reaction from the West, that, that it was sort of burning its bridges. Which, which of course didn't happen. Um, so I think that you know what we're what we're seeing now is sort of part of this uh, process, part of um, Russia's response, or rather, I should say, Putin's response uh, to the, sort of the, the West's uh, refusal to accept uh, the the Kremlin's sort of 19th century uh, spheres of influence um, version of, uh, of geopolitics. Um, there are uh, specific issues also uh, that the, the Kremlin is worried about uh, right now, uh, especially the uh, new surge of COVID-19 uh, that, uh, that I think is, is worrying the Kremlin. The We've seen just over the past couple of days uh, record new cases, uh, almost 24,000 uh, new cases uh, a day. Uh, at the same time, there's a realization that uh, the Russian economy probably is not going to be hail uh, for the foreseeable future. There's uh, recently a new study uh, saying that Russia can really only expect uh, around one and a half percent GDP growth uh, a year over the foreseeable uh, over the foreseeable future. And I think the the new national security uh, document sort of reflects that. Uh, I think in previous versions, there was at least language about um, you know, economic development uh, that, and, and, and economic uh, growth that has been dropped. Uh, in this document, the language is all about essentially protectionism, hunkering down, uh, developing Russia's own uh, technological capabilities, competing with the West, uh, trying to somehow wean itself from its uh, dependence on, uh, on oil and gas. Uh, again, this is all kinds of rhetoric that we've seen before, uh, but this time it's sort of taken together. It's a very Soviet-like uh, document. It's very Soviet-like language. It's as if Putin wants to create uh, a new Iron Curtain, and that's now clearly, uh, at least in rhetoric, the strategy, rather than any, any pretenses of um, cooperation or you know any kind of uh, you know uh, anything other than a zero-sum game with the West. Right. So we're looking into this deep history. The the narrative about cultural exclusivity. And and I just wonder how that projects on the relationship with two uh, important uh, neighbors, namely Belarus and Ukraine. It's not only about Ukraine, it's also a dynamic situation in Belarus. 
what are your projections for the dynamic between those three in in the year where we actually remember 30 years, exactly 30 years um, after the USSR was dissolved by exactly the same three actors? Yes, of course. I, you know, I think you know, predicting what Russia is going to do uh, is, is a bit of a mug's game. Uh, and I think that's part of uh, Putin's strategy uh, to keep uh, everyone, uh, including people in Russia, uh, guessing. Uh, there were sort of games about uh, predicting uh, what Russia, whether Russia was actually going to invade Ukraine again. Uh, just a couple months ago, a few months ago, uh, before the P- uh, Putin-Biden summit, when Russia was amassing troops uh, on its uh, border with Ukraine, uh, many of those troops remain. Um, but look, you know, I think that this kind of language about Ukraine uh, has been around in Russia well, for, let's say for decades and, and, and centuries, uh, going back to the claim that Kiev and Rus, the civilization that uh, existed based in Kiev before the rise of uh, Muscovy, what became Russia in the, in the northern uh, uh, Slav forests, uh, that really the Kiev and Rus was, was essentially Russian. It was, it was Russian civilization. It was, it was the first Russian civilization uh, that, that is to say, uh, when in fact uh, it, it was a it was it was separate. Uh, it uh, died out uh, a couple of hundred years before the rise of, of Muscovy, uh, and since then, since essentially the the 16th century, Russia has been engaged in essentially cultural appropriation. Uh, and you can see that if you look at the, for example, the names of the of the boyars, the the nobility in the in in, in the in the um, uh, in, in the Russian court, uh, which which were sort of uh, very uh, Muscovite uh, at, a, at a certain point when Russia was, uh, 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 well, I should say when Muscovy was first uh, starting to gain power uh, under Ivan the Great, uh, names started changing. They sounded started sounding very uh, Kievan. Uh, and so there's been this cultural appropriation going on uh, for centuries, this idea that Ukraine is uh, Malorossiya, that it's, it's, always been a, it's always been a part of Russia. Uh, we saw some of this language. In, in Putin's article. Um, it was also very notab- noticeable even in the 1990s uh, when, when you know, Russia and Ukraine you know, supposedly uh, were, were getting along relatively as, as independent countries. Living in Moscow, I was often struck by the news coming out of uh, Ukraine on, on Russian television channels. Now, this is when the Russian press was, uh, was, was free and fair, dynamic, was, was, was often very good. Uh, but the news was oft, was was almost exclusively some kind of you know a storm or some kind of natural disaster or protests. There was very little positive news. There was always this message that uh, Ukraine really couldn't hack it as an independent country uh, without somehow being uh, aligned, associated, ruled by by Moscow. So you know this is nothing new. Uh, but I think that Putin has uh, ch- you know chosen Ukraine as a uh, sort of confrontation point uh, with the West. It's it's a battleground over uh, uh, liberal democratic values. Uh, Ukraine's also very important to Russia. It's 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 um, uh, a very important uh, trading partner. Uh, and you know any idea that Russia would, or rather the you know the Kremlin would sort of reinstate a new version of the Soviet Union, whether through the uh, you know, a- economic uh, union uh, or otherwise, without Ukraine, that's just empty rhetoric. Thank you, Gregory. Thank you so much for being with us with, um, and recording 
your comments for, for the podcast. Um, we'll stay tuned. We'll be definitely watching for um, the further developments and um, not only political developments, but also the developments in the field of uh, memory politics. Um, remembering that in this particular year, Russia is uh, sensitive to to the questions of, of its legacy. Mm, and in December, we will have the uh, the the round anniversary that I'm sure Russians are also looking forward with some anxiety about the the dissolution of the USSR 30 years ago. Thanks you again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.